You're listening to the Irish Times Worldview Podcast. On Worldview this week, an EU summit on Thursday will discuss the deal proposed with Britain to avert Brexit. David Cameron is pitching it as a minimum, but some Central and Eastern European states in particular, notably Poland, are digging in against some of the welfare restrictions proposed for migrants. Where does Ireland stand, and will Cameron be able to sell such a deal if he gets it through? The death of one of the towering figures of the US Supreme Court, Antonin Scalia, its longest-serving member, has put the cat among the pigeons in the presidential election. President Obama has the opportunity in nominating his replacement to change the political balance in a court that has been dominated by Republicans since the 1970s. Republicans in the Senate and on the stomp say he must be stopped. We look at the politics of the row and the legacy of a man who has successfully helped redefine the way courts look at the Constitution. I'll be discussing Brexit with our Brussels and London correspondents Suzanne Lynch and Dennis Staunton respectively, and the Scalia legacy with Simon Carswell, our Washington correspondent, and our former legal affairs, now foreign affairs correspondent, Ruan McCormack. I'm Patrick Smith. Worldview is an Irish Times podcast bringing you perspectives on foreign affairs from our global network of correspondents. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week. First to the Brexit debate on Suzanne in, in Brussels. Perhaps you could outline briefly what, for, what is supposed to be on offer. Well, uh, Donald Tusk two weeks ago came forward with a draft proposal that will be discussed by leaders at this week's EU summit. And essentially, it, it's quite a legal, legalistic document, but it addresses four main concerns that Cameron had set out from the outset of these negotiations. Uh, firstly, and most controversially, on the issue of um, migrants' benefits, it is um, Cameron had wanted a ban on uh, people being able to claim child benefits or other benefits um, for four years, in-work benefits in particular. Um, now, this document says that he will be permitted to um, cap these benefits on a gradated uh, level. So that's one of, one of the issues. Uh, the second issue was about um, opt-out or some kind of uh, distinction between the Eurozone member states and those who are not members of the Eurozone. Um, he did get something on that. Um, but the controversial issue here is that he wants uh, decisions that are made for the Eurozone to be referred up to the 28-member level, uh, if needed. And then um, there was also some language on competitiveness. That's pretty straightforward. Um, almost everyone backs the idea of less red tape for Europe. Um, and then finally, the issue of uh, power for national parliaments. Um, and here, Cameron uh, has been offered a kind of red card system whereby 55% of national governments can um, oppose certain legislation if it feels that it's uh, in breach of the EU principle of subsidiarity. So there are the four main principles that are contained in this document. But a lot of the details um, are still being thrashed out uh, as we speak this week. But in reality, it appears that there is one area of great concern uh, where uh, the, a number of member states are opposed and that's to do with welfare or income support for Mm. for migrants and particularly now the payment of child benefits to children living abroad when their parents are are working in, in, say, Britain. Yeah, this, the, the issue of child benefits, um, as you say, there is slightly different to the w- issue of in-work benefits, but this looks like it is going to be a subject of contention in the, in the, at the summit. Um, we saw the four Visegrad uh, groups of countries, Czech Republic, Slovakia, Hungary and Poland meeting this week. They were scheduled to meet to, in a sense, get their ducks in a row uh, ahead of the summit. They have already expressed concern about how, how this 
benefit child benefits rule is going to work. Essentially, uh, what Britain wants is to index link this uh, child benefits to the country of origin. But what seems to be the key point of contention now is whether that will apply to newcomers, uh, people just arriving uh, in Britain after this deal is done, or um, the people who are already living in the country. That is not clear in the text that's currently on the table. So we expect that to be a serious uh, issue of contention um, at the summit. Now, in theory, um, if a country has a higher uh, standard of living than Britain's, uh, they would then get uh, higher benefits. Well, yes, but I mean, the reality is that Britain has got, I mean, this is the debate, Britain has got a higher minimum wage, higher um, wages for than a lot of these countries in East European, um, East Europe, um, and also got more gen- generous benefits. That, that, that is a fact, and this is one of the issues that face the irony of the situation, that even if these uh, agreements um, are reached, even if Britain is allowed curb in-work benefits, it probably won't really affect the number of people coming anyway, because they're still attracted to the higher minimum wage, uh, etc., in saying that, it's an important point of principle for these four countries, um, and they are going to be able to, uh, from my perspective, and here in Brussels, there's a sense that a lot of these East, East European countries haven't put up as much of a fight as people were expecting. So we could see them wanting to ensure that these uh, child benefit rules, at least, uh, are only uh, applicable to new uh, co- people coming into Britain from Eastern Europe. Poland uh, claims that it has what it calls 100,000 orphans, which is kids living in Poland whose parents are working abroad. Um, But on the other hand, 40% of the cash coming from those parents is coming from Germany and only 20% from from, uh, Britain. So it's not perhaps as big a deal as as, uh, the British seem to be making out. Yes, and one of the issues that's going to be thrashed out now in the next few days is there has been a suggestion that maybe the child benefits rule will just apply to countries who allowed uh, new immigrants in from Eastern Europe in 2004. That was three countries, Britain, Ireland and Sweden. Um, So obviously that would not include countries like Germany, Luxembourg, Belgium. So as I say, this is going to be an issue. The, The Central and East European countries are worried that other countries, such as Germany, such as Denmark, might piggyback on those rules um, that are agreed specifically for Britain or these 2004, um, three 2004 countries. Um, so that's going to be something that they're going to want clarification on over the next few days. And Donald Tusk, who's president of the council, warned on Monday that positions seem to be hardening. And there are reports that Portugal, Luxembourg, Belgium and Italy, as well as the Visigod countries, are, are opposed to the British deal. How far do you think they will push it? I think there has been a a sea change in the last few months uh, whereby most European countries are keen to get a deal done for Britain. Obviously, there are enormous crises facing the European Union on other fronts. And, you know, their main aim is to get this this finished. And they're ready to compromise um, a bit more than they may have been, we'll say, a year ago. In saying that, there are significant hurdles. As you mentioned, their specific countries have specific issues. France, in particular, has got serious concerns about um, any carve-out for the city of London and anything that might impinge on the strength of the euro currency. And quietly, it has the backing of the ECB on that, even though Mario Draghi was here in Brussels this week, and he, he stressed that the ECB is not a player in this. Um, behind the scenes, it is. It, it's very concerned about anything that might impact on the strength of the euro, uh, particularly at a time when um, there are ripples in the markets and um, fears about the economic uh, growth in the eurozone. Now, the other... Um, but the other element of this would be the European Parliament. Now, significantly, David Cameron is in Brussels on Tuesday today to speak to Martin Schulz, 
and various senior figures from the European Parliament, they will have a role in some way at once if this deal is agreed, if Cameron um, is supported by the British public in the referendum, well then we are probably going to see some elements of the package going to the European Parliament for approval. Um, so I think that's going to be something to watch out for in the next couple of months um, once uh, the referendum happens. We won't get an indication before Thursday of, of the Parliament's position. Well, in one sense, um, the, um, there may not be as much opposition as m people may have feared because the Parliament has been quite involved. Um, Tusk and Cameron have quite cleverly brought the European Parliament in over the last few weeks since the discussions have been happening. So in a sense, any, any issue they had, any major issue they had, they may have already raised, and the hope would be that this will be sorted out on Thursday and Friday at this summit. In saying that, um, it will still have to go to MEPs. So here, the support of the main political groups in the Parliament are, is crucial. And again, we see, we see uh, the effect, the potential effect that David Cameron's decision to pull the Conservative Party out of the EPP group, that's the main centre-right uh, political party, he pulls, he pulled uh, the Conservative Party out of that a few years ago. And this might be coming back to haunt him because this is exactly the time when he needs the support of those groups. But as I say, Cameron has been making overtures over the last few days, his officials have as well. So their hope will be that the European Parliament is on board. Now, Dennis, if uh, Cameron comes uh, on Thursday to, to Brussels and is confronted with a, a demand that the benefit cuts would only apply to, to new arrivals, is that a deal that he could live with? I think he probably could. He's already uh, conceded that that's going to be the case where the uh, in-work benefits are concerned. It's quite clear that that will actually only apply to people who arrive uh, from now on in Britain. And that's one of the reasons why the, uh, the polls have been uh, able to agree to that part of it. What hadn't been until uh, the last couple of days, uh, an issue was the whole business of whether the child benefit issue would also only apply from now on or uh, and would not, in fact, be, uh, be introduced retrospectively. So that's one of the things that uh, I, I, don't, I don't think it's going to really make an enormous difference either way if uh, Cameron gets a deal in terms of uh, just how people in Britain will perceive the deal as being either substantial or not. Uh, I think that the anxiety that... Uh, Downing Street has is not even so much to do with uh, problems with giving Britain more or less what it wants, but it's, as Suzanne says, this uh, anxiety that other countries might want more of the same, and so that, uh, that the thing becomes complicated, in a sense, by, uh, through negotiations between countries other than Britain and the European Commission or various other member states. I mean, the Commission's position obviously has to be that this is not a deal for Britain, but a deal for the whole European Union, and it, it wouldn't wear a, a country-specific deal. No, but having said that, uh, the, the, uh, as Suzanne mentioned, one option would be that you apply these exceptions only to countries that, uh, that didn't exercise their option of delaying the uh, giving free movement rights to new member states in 2004. So you could limit it in that way. You could find ways of making this something which was not country-specific, but actually that would only apply to a very limited number of countries. Is there any indication that Mr Noonan is only waiting for the opportunity to sign up? 
I think you're in a better position than I am to, to, to determine that about Mr. Noonan's intentions. I don't know. Uh, he may not. He may not be in a position <laughs> to uh, <laughs> to do so anyway. But what uh, are Cameron's people uh, saying about their their confidence about the meeting on Thursday? Well, one sign of confidence is that uh, they've said that uh, if he gets a deal on uh, Thursday night, he's planning to come back on Friday afternoon and immediately have uh, an emergency cabinet meeting where he will then announce the date of the uh, of the referendum and also what the government's position on the referendum is going to be, and that's pretty certainly going to be to, that Britain should remain inside. And then from that moment on, members of the cabinet who don't agree with that position will be free to argue against it. And uh, this is quite important from the Eurosceptics' point of view because they were getting rather worked up the idea that David Cameron would, would come back on Friday and wait until Tuesday to have a cabinet meeting, giving him the whole weekend to trumpet the benefit of his deal while they had to remain mute. So that's going to be uh, that's a concession to them, which is quite important. But it also is a sign that Downing Street really thinks this thing can be done on Thursday night. Uh, but a lot of it, as I say, uh, depends on, uh, on actors other than David Cameron himself in terms of the other member states and any issues that they may, may raise in connection with it. London has sort of, in, in its approach to this, <laughs> these discussions, has staked quite a lot on, on Thursday being successful <coughs> uh, and, and bouncing, they hope, uh, their European partners into agreeing to a deal. Failure on Thursday would be quite a serious blow to Cameron. Yes, it would. It would certainly be a, a, a serious setback because I think also the strategy has been not to um, not to do too much uh, in terms of a kind of a high wire act of uh, of operatic displays uh, and actually to try to just get this thing done pretty efficiently, pretty quickly, come home, and then really as soon as the uh, referendum campaign begins, uh, there'll be very little talk, I would imagine, about the content of this deal, just getting the deal and the fact that it was uh, that he's going to claim it as a success will really be the key. I think from then on, the arguments here are really going to be about whether Britain is better off inside or outside the European Union. And is it clear yet um, about the whole of the cabinet? Are Michael Gove and, and Boris Johnson, are they on, on board with Cameron yet? Uh, it's not clear where Michael Gove, who's the Justice Secretary, uh, is going to stand. Boris Johnson is not in the Cabinet, but he's obviously a very important uh, and high-profile figure in the Conservative Party. And uh, likewise, he hasn't, he's been pretty coy. So it's not really quite clear. They've, um, uh, Michael Gove has been saying nothing. Uh, Boris Johnson has been uh, giving sort of conflicting signals about where he might go. And part of the key to uh, winning their, their support may be something else that David Cameron will come up with, which is quite separate as a kind of a unilateral thing, which might somehow assert the, um, the primacy of uh, the British constitution uh, in the way that uh, in Germany, the constitutional court of Germany can determine whether something in an EU law is in breach of the German constitution. As you know, uh, EU law is uh, superior to national law. That's part of the deal when you sign up to the European Union. But many countries have got a mechanism where they can say, actually, this particular uh, piece of law is against our constitution. Uh, the, uh, the German constitutional court has never actually shot down a piece of European legislation, but it has sent warning signals which have then caused uh, certain uh, decisions to be modified. Uh, there's some talk that 
David Cameron may be working on something similar uh, which, uh, for here, but that's obviously a little bit complicated by the fact that Britain doesn't have a written constitution. Uh, so that may be something which will, uh, uh, will ensure that people like Michael Gove and Boris Johnson do actually come on, come on board uh, the side urging people to stay in the European Union. They've just retreated, though, on, on their proposal to um, uh, undermine the European Court of Human Rights. Yes, but that is uh, that is uh, obviously a, a separate issue, uh, given that it's not uh, part of the European Union. I think this, uh, whatever they do, it may uh, yeah, there are a number of uh, of rather arcane ideas floating around. But uh, it's uh, the problem with most of them. Either uh, either they're going to be probably fairly ineffective, or else they're going to take too long and be too cumbersome to put in place. But a lot of the talk is about giving the uh, the British uh, Supreme Court. Uh, uh, some new oversight rule in terms of determining whether uh, legislation uh, is in breach of the Constitution. Suzanne, um, we come to the question of where Ireland stands in this debate. At a meeting in Dublin the other day, one economist told the audience that we should pay, and I quote, any price to keep Britain in. Is that the reality of our position? I think Ireland is treading a difficult territory here on the, the British renegotiation. Obviously, the impact of a British exit is very obvious um, on Ireland. We stand the most to lose, arguably, of all uh, of the other 27 member states, um, particularly in terms of implications for the North, but also our economy. But at the same time, Ireland um, is, is a Euro member. Um, it's also got a, a, a quite a, um, an interesting relationship with the City of London. So, for example, a lot of the activity in the IFSC is linked to uh, the activity that's happening in London. So... In a sense, anything that would favour the City of London at an expense of other Eurozone uh, capitals, other Eurozone financial centres, is something that, that Ireland will, will be strongly against. Um, so in that sense, uh, Ireland would, would share some of the concerns of France about anything that could destabilise the Eurozone. In saying that, around the EU table here in Brussels, Ireland is aligned with Britain on a host of particularly financial services regulation on things like trade. Um, it's very, very pro-trade, pro-the EU-US trade deal, for example, as is Britain. Um, and on th things like regulation, um, Ireland is quite happy with the work that the British Commissioner, Jonathan Hill, is doing. Um, uh, it, it, it's not quite light-touch regulation, but uh, Ireland, like Britain, is opposed to too much intrusion um, on financial regulation uh, by uh, the European Union. So if Ireland was to lose Britain, um, those implications behind the scene would be huge about how the direction of the European Union is going in terms of regulation. So in that sense, um, as I say, it's a tricky balance. Um, but I, from what I'm hearing in, in Brussels this week, I think the main objective at this point for Ireland is that, uh, you know, to really make sure that there are no suggestions of treaty change. Obviously, that would trigger a, a, a referendum in Ireland. And um, so that's the number one concern, uh, if you like. Um, but it'll be interesting to see uh, what Enda Kenny says when he's here uh, later on this week in Brussels. Presumably, uh, he will end up supporting uh, David Cameron on Thursday. Absolutely. He was uh, undoubtedly one of the strongest uh, supporters of Cameron last uh, December at the European Council Summit. He spoke out strongly in favour of David Cameron. He noted how Britain had helped Ireland and other uh, Eurozone bailout countries during their economic difficulties and urged other countries to back Cameron. So yes, undoubtedly Ireland is on the British side on this. But as I say, it mightn't be as straightforward as that. Behind the scenes, it is looking out for warning signs about anything that might affect uh, Euro uh, member states. And 
Both of you, finally, uh, what's your bet on about what happens on Thursday? I mean, if, if, if I put a bet on I say a deal will be done uh, on Thursday, and as Dennis said, the fact that a provisional cabinet meeting has been pencilled in in London on Friday afternoon obviously suggests a certain confidence. In saying that, there still is time. Um, this has happened many times where an extra summit could be uh, called. We saw that a host of times last year during the Greek crisis where summit after summit was called. Um, some officials saying here that Friday the 3rd of March is absolutely the last day by which um, a deal would need to be done in order for Britain uh, to have a referendum by the end of June. So a further summit is not out of the question maybe next week or the week after. Dennis? Uh, I'd say that they would probably will do the deal this week. Uh, I think uh, it is uh, important from Britain's point of view to get the thing done quickly. And, uh, and I think there certainly is some confidence that, uh, that there's a willingness on the part of most of Britain's European partners to, uh, to do what's necessary to uh, allow David Cameron to go back and recommend uh, a yes vote. And, and uh, Suzanne is quite right that uh, the beginning of March is the absolute latest that they could do the deal and be sure that, um, that they could hold a referendum uh, by the end of June, which they feel they have to. So I'd say there will be a deal this week. Thank you both. You're listening to The Irish Times. The political fallout from the death of Antonin Scalia has shaken the presidential election in the US. A lot is at stake for both parties. Uh, over whether a Conservative majority in the court uh, can be replaced by a Liberal one. All the great issues of US politics play out in the court eventually, again and again. Immigration, gun control, the death penalty, Obamacare, abortion, political campaigning, states' rights and federalism, affirmative action, etc. Simon Carswell, what happens to cases in the system in the event of a draw, uh, a 4-4 logjam, if, if, if that is to happen now? The, that's, that's exactly what will happen to logjam. Uh, you'll have a hung court. So at the moment, the makeup of the Supreme Court is there are four fairly consistent, uh, consistent conservatives and four consistent liberals. Although one of the conservatives, Anthony Kennedy, sometimes votes with the liberals on social issues, but he's predominantly conservative. So what you'd have happen is, is if, a, if a case came up from one of the lower courts, from one of the appeals courts, if there's a 4-4 vote, uh, it's a hung court, and the lower court standing uh, remains. So this, this really is a critical moment for the Supreme Court and the political process because the next appointment could effectively uh, shift the balance of power left towards the Liberals. And this is really why the Republicans want to block President Obama's nomination to the court. They're saying he shouldn't make a lifelong appointment uh, for someone who's an outgoing president and in, his, in an election year. But the real reason is, is they don't want to lose control of the court. What happens to cases in the system, like the important uh, immigration case that Obama uh, is, uh, is facing? Well, what would happen in that case, if there's a 4-4 tie, if uh, the Conservatives and Liberals vote along their ideological lines, the lower court ruling, which is an appeals court ruling from November, blocking President Obama's plan to shield up to 5 million undocumented immigrants from deportation, that stands. So he's unable to bring in his executive order. So it's, this is a critical moment for President Obama and some important political decisions. Now, Mitch McConnell, who's the leader of the Republicans in the Senate, as, as you said, says that Obama, with a year to go, has no longer got a mandate. But that hasn't always been McConnell's position. Back in 2006, he was arguing on the other side of the, of the, the case. That's correct. And uh, Democrats, uh, it's been pointed out that senior Democrats have tried to block final year or, or appointments by so-called lame duck presidents. 
Chuck Schumer's remarks, this is a senior Democrat from New York, have been raised in recent days showing that this is what Democrats do. So it's not unique to Republicans. And also, Democrats have pointed to the fact that Ronald Reagan, in an election year, uh, had his Supreme Court justice confirmed Anthony Kennedy, who's one of the Supreme Court judges currently on the bench. So there is a precedent there to appoint someone in an election year. And it would be pretty much unprecedented for a 300-day delay to be put in place by the by the Senate? It would. The longest confirmation process for a Supreme Court justice in any year is 125 days, and that dates back to an appointment made by Woodrow Wilson uh, in the face of a, a very uh, unhappy Congress uh, that did eventually go through. So Obama has plenty of time. He's more than 300 days left in office. So Democrats are pointing out that this is just a bit of an excuse that's been thrown out there by Republicans. But it, this reflects the deepening uh, partisanship in, in Congress, the fact uh, that over many issues, uh, Obama simply has been unable to work with the Republican majority. It is a symptom of the dysfunction in Washington. Very little is done in Congress. There's very little that the Republicans and Democrats can agree on, which is why the Supreme Court has become this crucial arbiter of, of a large, mostly social issues. Uh, and that was a, something that was a bugbear to Antonin Scalia. He felt that this was not something that should be decided by an unelected group of nine judges. He felt that this is something that lawmakers should decide on. So uh, this is, again, a critical moment. It's turned uh, the U.S. presidential race uh, into a fight not just for the White House, but also for Congress and control of the Senate, and now the control of the Supreme Court. And, of course, uh, the reality is that even if the Democrats won the White House, they wouldn't necessarily win a majority in the Senate, so they could, they, they, this, this particular battle could continue. It could. It could go on for some time. They could try and push through uh, uh, the appointment of the Supreme Court justice on a, on a simple majority of 51 votes, but at the moment they don't have that 54. Uh, the Republicans are in control of the Senate with 54 seats. But there are Senate seats up for grabs this year, and... One of the issues that's been raised in recent days is, is that if uh, Republicans object to a minority nominee uh, that President Obama wants to appoint to the court, that could alienate a lot of minority voters in some of the Senate races that Republicans are trying to hold on seats to. So this is really changing not just the White House race, but also the Senate race, too. And it's playing into the presidential campaign. I, I gather Ted Cruz sees this as a real opportunity for him. Well, he does, and he's been saying it on the campaign trail for months. He's been warning his conservative voters, saying, well, the next president is likely to be appointing either between one and four uh, judges. Now he's, uh, the next president is more than likely going to be appointing uh, certainly one judge. So he's really, um, he's really raised the stakes uh, as to what's at issue in this election, and he, it's part of his anti-Washington campaign. Uh, and an example of, well, we're losing control to the Washington liberal elite. So this is, an, this is a chance for us uh, to take control of the court. So he's really up in the ante in, in this campaign and in this fight for the Supreme Court. But would there be any sort of blue water difference between the uh, Republican candidates on, the, the, on this issue? I mean, I, I think they're all opposed to uh, allowing Obama to, to nominate somebody. Is that right? They are. They want the Senate to delay as much as they can. They've called on Mitch McConnell, the Republican Senate Majority Leader, to block the vote. They don't want to see it going ahead. They want to see uh, the appointment of this uh, Supreme Court justice replacement done by a Republican in the White House after January 2017. Now, Ruin, the U.S. Supreme Court plays a much more political role in their system than the Irish court does in, in ours. 
in partly that's to, due to the fact that, that the idea of judges' political accountability is very much central to the American system. But what, what do our, the two courts share? Well, broadly speaking, they're very similar institutions in the sense that they're both final courts of appeal in countries that have written constitutions, uh, each with a Bill of Rights. And somebody has to, at the end of the day, interpret what that Bill of Rights means, and that falls to the Supreme Court in each country. Um, but the Irish Supreme Court is significantly less powerful than its U.S. counterpart, uh, and there's a very simple reason for that. The U.S. Constitution is virtually unamendable. Not completely so. It has been done. But it's an extremely difficult thing to do, particularly when uh, opinion is polarized, when the country is, is politically divided, as it is now. So to propose an amendment of the U.S., you need either a two-thirds supermajority vote of both the House of Representatives and the Senate, or you need uh, a proposal from two-thirds of state legislatures who must then vote and ask Congress to call a national convention. It's really very cumbersome, and that's only to propose an amendment. Uh, to ratify one, you need approval from three-quarters of all state legislatures. So as you can see, it's, it's a very difficult process, and it's, it, it's as you, for obvious reasons, it hasn't been used all that much. And because of that, the U.S. Um, Supreme Court's decision is, in effect, the final word, at least on issues that are in any way uh, controversial. In Ireland, it's very different. In Ireland, um, it's considerably more straightforward to change the Constitution, uh, and it's much more common because of that. Um, all you need is a vote of Parliament followed by approval from uh, a simple majority of the people who turn out to vote in a national referendum. And what that means is that it's comparatively easy for a government to undo or reverse the effects of a Supreme Court judgment. And indeed, that has been done. So in 1966, for example, there was a famous judgment called the O'Callaghan Judgment from the Supreme Court where um, it was on bail and the court said it wasn't constitutionally permissible to deny somebody bail because you believed that that person was going to commit a crime while on bail. Um, and the, government's, the government at the time was furious about this. Subsequent governments really didn't like it. Um, and eventually it was put to a referendum. Now, as it happens, it happened. The referendum came 30 years later. But it was uh, it was in the in the gift of the government. The government was able to reverse that that decision. In a similar situation, it could be very very difficult for a government to do in the U.S. Um, more recently, in 1983, the Eighth Amendment on abortion was passed um, after a campaign largely driven by concern among uh, the anti-abortion lobby in Ireland that the Supreme Court here would follow the U.S. Supreme Court's example in Roe and Wade um, and introduce abortion by way of uh, the right to privacy. So in that case, it's an example of, I suppose, a preemptive move to block the Supreme Court from doing something it hadn't yet done, and might, for all we know, never have done at all. Now, Antonin Scalia will be remembered less for his individual judgments uh, in, the in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, there were a few, uh, like in a case called Heller, uh, reaffirming the right to bear arms, and in Bush and Gore, which famously deprived Al Gore of the presidency. But he'd be remembered for his articulation of the ideas of, of, of what is called constitutional originalism. It's a bit like biblical literalism. It, it rejects the idea of a living constitution that changes with time. And it, it has become very influential in, in American judicial thinking in the course of, of Scalia's uh, uh, career. Does that argument have a resonance here? Do we have, uh, do we have a living constitution? I don't think it has much re resonance. Um, I don't think it's a direct equivalent to originalism in the Irish courts, and certainly it wouldn't be put in those terms here. Um, 
so the Irish Supreme Court will often consider what the intention of the drafters of the 1937 Constitution might have been, but they'll also consider a lot of other things. So they'll consider uh, what the Oireachtas' intention, the intention of Parliament was in drafting laws, something Scalia didn't have a great deal of time for. Um, in, an Irish, in the Irish courts, the idea of the Constitution as a living document is pretty much a given, um, and it's been articulated for a long time by various judges. So the Chief Justice currently, Susan Denham, uh, often says exactly those words. And Brian Walsh, who was uh, uh, who served on the court for almost 30 years from the early 1960s onwards and was a, something of a giant in that era of judicial expansionism in the 60s and 70s, he'd often say that, to, that it was significant that the Constitution was written in the present tense. In other words, it was written in a way that it had to be read uh, in the light of present-day circumstances. Now, having said all of that, I don't think the influence of Scalia is completely negligible here. Um, I think the stylistic elegance of uh, his judgments, the care he took to make sure his judgments were not only persuasive but enjoyable to read, I think, think all of that did have an impact. And when you read some of the more polemical judgments here, particularly dissenting judgments, um, it's hard at times not to be reminded of Scalia's style. Um, as we, well, the we final don't, thing that's we don't yeah. have uh, Irish judges uh, berating their colleagues in quite the blunt style that Scalia uh, adopted. No, certainly not. They had a tradition, they have a tradition in the U.S. Supreme Court where all the justices will shake hands um, before they go in and then tear strips off each other once they're actually in the court. None of that goes on here. Um, but in, in, in maybe in more subtle ways, the influence can be, can be detected. It's, it's worth pointing out, I suppose, that while the originalist doctrine doesn't really have any takers here, um, Scalia's insistence on the separation of powers is something that's close to the hearts of many Irish judges. Um, you could argue, I suppose, that his views on, on the separation of powers were less clear-cut than he liked to claim, but the, the principle itself, in other words, that judges should steer clear of policy or anything that looks or sounds like legislating, I think that's a principle that many many judges here in Ireland would hold to pretty adamantly. For example, when you read um, Adrian Hardyman's judgments, judgments which are pretty trenchant a lot of the time, particularly his dissents, um, you see that that principle itself is is very much an article of faith for him and for very very many other Irish judges as well, I think. Yeah, you've seen on a number of issues the courts here telling the legislature that it's up to them to sort out particular problems and, that, and wishing that they would get up with uh, doing it. Simon, in the American um, debate uh, in the, the presidential election, is there, is there um, uh, an argument that the Democratic side is able to make at all? Um, what they're saying is that it would be unconstitutional uh, and the president would not be fulfilling his constitutional responsibilities not to appoint um, a justice to the Supreme Court. You have Hillary Clinton coming out saying uh, it would be a nakedly partisan move and conscionable. Um, and she's been very busy pointing to Obama's orders on immigration, but she's obviously got uh, skin in the game given that she's trying to win over Hispanic Americans um, in Nevada in the current caucuses that she's fighting. Bernie Sanders has said pretty much the same thing, that your Republicans can't claim what they're claiming and kind of point to the fact that they're really just trying to hold on until the hope, in the hope that they will get a Republican into the White House who can actually make a conservative appointment to replace Scalia. So uh, they're really standing over what the president is doing, and he has every right to do and as, and as time to do it, as Hillary Clinton's point of it. Thank you very much, both of you. Thanks to Suzanne Lynch, Dennis Staunton, Simon Carswell and Rowan McCormick, to our producer Declan Conlon and Gary White on sound. Subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher to get Worldview delivered to you free of charge each week.